Well, I want you to think about a time in your life where you were asked to do something that you felt was simply just impossible. Maybe it was something at work, you were just given a deadline that you thought there was no way you would ever meet it. Uh, Maybe it was a do-it-yourself project around your home that was a great idea in your mind, but when you started, not so much. Uh, Have you had one of those? Yeah, I've had several of those. Maybe it's something in ministry, maybe some way you were trying to serve the Lord and you just thought, you know, this is never, how in the world will this work out? I remember one time being on a missions trip in Uganda. We were with the Hurley family, who some of you know our church uh, supports uh, their ministry there in Uganda. But we were with them, but then we were leaving to go to a different part of the country and to work with a different ministry. And we kept reaching out saying, hey, we're, we're excited to be there. You know, what can we prepare? Well, what do you need us to do? And kept getting nothing in response, nothing in response, nothing in response. Until the day before we're leaving to go there, we get a response saying, hey, what we're going to be doing is putting on this conference for a lot of people that work basically in children's ministry in this region of the country. We're actually going to try to train them all in theology, kind of go through a crash course in systematic theology with all of them. We were like, great, awesome, how can we help? You guys are teaching. Okay, right? How in the world is that going to happen? Or maybe some of you, you know, Christmas, for those of you that have lost track of this, is only six days away. So if you're not done with your shopping, there's no time like the present. Um, and maybe some of you, you're thinking that's an impossible task because you're thinking of your spouse or that special someone. What do you get them? Of course, not because that person might be difficult to please, but because how do you get something for someone who has everything, right? Um, if that seems like an impossible task, we've all had moments where we have something in our life that it's just, how, how is this going to happen? I guarantee you, whatever you have felt, whatever I have felt, pales in comparison to the task that was given to a young girl almost 2,000 years ago. And that's what we're going to look at today, really the story of Mary. So take your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 1. Open up to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to spend some time here today and on Friday looking at the example of Mary. We're going to look at Christmas through the eyes of Mary. And that's difficult because uh, Mary is kind of a misunderstood figure, especially throughout the history of the church. Because what a lot of people have done with Mary over the years is worshipped her, where she has become an object of worship. And, and that is not something that God ever intended for us to worship Mary. And even to uphold this doctrine, different things have come up. This idea of the Immaculate Conception, which, in case you're confused, that's not talking about Jesus. That's talking about Mary, according to the Roman Catholic Church, teaching that she was also conceived miraculously because, well, then she can give birth to this sinless Savior. And if, well, she has to be sinless too, well, then she can't die. So this idea of the assumption of Mary, all those things are things that are not in the Bible and I'm sure would actually grieve Mary's heart Uh, to know all the things that have been taught about her throughout the years. But kind of in contrast to that, unfortunately, sometimes, instead of being worshipped, which, yeah, she shouldn't be worshipped, she gets ignored, right? And she's just some character in the story. She's just some wood-carved figurine in your nativity set, and we don't think about her. But we think about all the examples we have in the Bible, and that's a good thing. Hebrews 11 goes through this whole list of examples of faith from the Old Testament. Well, if there was a New Testament portion to that chapter, I'm confident that Mary would be in it for the example of faith that we're going to really see 
today. So let's look at this passage. Today we're going to look at verses 26 through 38. 26 through 38, and then we'll look at uh, kind of the song that she uh, says later in the chapter. We'll dig into that more on Friday. But look with me as I read uh, verses 26 through 38 of Luke 1. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So as we look at this, I really want to zoom in on those last two verses And then kind of bring in some of those other details from the text to help us understand that. But verse 37 gives us this powerful statement, for nothing will be impossible with God. Because God is doing a couple things in this chapter that, humanly speaking, would be impossible. Verse 36 mentions that Elizabeth is now basically six months pregnant, and it identifies her as her who was called barren. And when you, some of you might be familiar with that story. Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. And also, uh, an incredible situation, if you go back to uh, verses five, verse 5, it introduces us to Zechariah, who's a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. And it says in verse 6, basically, they were both godly people. But verse 7 says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Yet in the midst of all that, God says, no, you're going to finally get pregnant and conceive and bear a child. And it's in response to that that God is saying, nothing is impossible with God. Not somebody that's old and barren having a child and not someone who is having or, or who is a virgin having a child. And this isn't the only place in scripture that we see this idea of nothing being impossible with God. Mark 10, 27 and a few other references that are there at the end of that story of the rich young ruler when the disciples say, well, how, how can anybody get saved then? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Or he says to his disciples in Matthew 17, 20, when they can't cast this demon out of this child and they say, why couldn't we do it? Jesus says to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
So there it's not even just telling us that nothing is impossible for God, but when God's people have faith, nothing will be impossible for you. The Old Testament speaks of it as well, but uses a different phrase in Jeremiah 32, verse 17. The prophet Jeremiah says to God, nothing is too hard for you. And then in verse 27, God responds and says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Right? And the obvious implied answer to that question is what? Is anything too hard for God? No. No. Nothing is too hard for God. And so scripture uses these words, possible, impossible, you know, too hard. But really, when God is using that language, he's kind of coming down to our level to describe it to us. Because that's how we think about things, right? Some things you might think of, well, that's easy. And that other thing, that's hard. And at some point, it crosses a line where it becomes too hard. We have kind of this whole scale from easy to too hard. And God uses some of those words to describe his power to us, but that scale doesn't exist for God. It's not that anything is too hard for God. It's also that category of hard versus easy doesn't really exist in God's mind. Scripture says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, right? That's how God operates. There's no scale of easy, hard, too hard. I do whatever I please. God has the power to do everything. So let's put point number one down this way. Affirm that nothing is difficult for God. Even to put it even more bluntly, not only is nothing impossible, nothing is difficult because God doesn't think in those terms. God doesn't think of, well, oh yeah, that's hard or that's easy. No, he does whatever he pleases. I mean, could you imagine praying to God and saying, God, I want you to do this, but God, I know it's really hard for you, right? I mean, wouldn't that just sound ridiculous? I mean, you, hopefully you would say, well, I know nothing's too hard, but God, I know this is really hard. No, he does whatever he pleases. And so even as we look at the example of Mary this morning, we have to realize we're not just seeing Mary. Mary is showing us, and this, this whole back and forth is really showing us something about God and how great he is, that he is infinite while we are finite. And he is so much bigger than we can realize, bigger than we can wrap our minds around, and we need to focus more on him and his power than we do on ourselves or our circumstances. And as we see this infinite power, this sovereign power of God in this passage, there's a couple ways that it's highlighted. And the first of those is really the miracle of the virgin birth. The miracle of the virgin birth. And without getting too far into the birds and the bees here this morning, right? We all know it takes a father and a mother to produce a child, right? And there's a little problem here because, well, there's no father in this case. Mary has never been with a man. And so she asks a very fair question in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And that's very powerful imagery there, but it's not very scientific. It's not, for those of you kind of biology nerds among us this morning, it's not answering all the questions of, well, how did this exactly work, right? We don't know. But what we must gather is that there were 23 instantly created divine chromosomes that were put into Mary. And that she conceived a child through the power of the Holy Spirit. It also, uh, 
shows us kind of really a difference between, it shows us Christianity is not just copying other religions because Greek mythology is full of examples of gods kind of coming down, seeing an attractive woman, having a child with her, and then there's, you know, this half, a human half divine child. That, that is not how it worked. This was something that was done through the Holy Spirit, and you have a child that's not half and half, a child that is fully God and fully man. And we really believe this. But you might say, but pastor, that's, that's impossible. Well, so is turning water into wine. So is creating the world out of nothing. So is rising from the dead. But we believe all of these things, right? It really comes down to, do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God exists and the supernatural exists and that he can do whatever he pleases? But it's amazing how the virgin birth actually especially in theological circles, has become somewhat of a sticking point, right? Where a lot of people have tried to back and say, well, I don't know about that, right? But if you give up on that, what's to keep you from giving up on everything else? And the Bible makes clear this idea is not just, you know, some side note in the Christmas story. It's, it's actually crucial. God said, Isaiah seven fourteen, no, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. And even just theologically, we understand not just some human baby could save all of us from our sins. This had to be a divine child because every naturally born human baby is born in sin. And someone born in sin cannot save you and me from sin. Notice all the way going back to Genesis 3, verse 15, something theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, right? Where it talks about this person that's going to come and though the serpent will bruise his heel, he will bruise the serpent's head. Notice that was not said to Adam. It wasn't said, hey, one of your descendants, Adam. No, it was said to the woman. The seed of the woman is going to be the one that will crush the head of the serpent. Our salvation depends on this doctrine of the virgin birth because only through this process could Jesus rightly be called the Son of God. The preexistent one, the Word putting on flesh. This was the only way that it could happen. And it comes down to a point, do you believe that or not? I heard someone else put it this way lately. We believe that the womb was not empty when it should have been, and the tomb was empty when it shouldn't have been, right? We believe that Jesus was born miraculously and that he was raised miraculously as well. And because of that, we are saved from our sin. So we see this limitless power of God at work through the virgin birth. We also see it through the power of fulfilled prophecy in this passage. Now, like I said, the virgin birth itself is fulfilled prophecy, but there's also the bigger picture of the Messiah, that this virgin birth is going to fulfill all the things that have been said about the Messiah. And really, we get a lot of that in verses 32 and 33 there in Luke 1. He will be called great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That sounds like some of the Christmas songs we were singing this morning. Or the familiar verse that especially comes up at Christmas time from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Right? This idea of this king of this son of David, this king coming and reigning forevermore was all over the Old Testament. And the angel is saying, God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And it's clear there was an expectation. There was no king sitting on the throne of David at this time. There was no descendant of David on the throne, but there was an expectation there would be. Again, remember, think of the wise men. When they say, hey, where's this guy who's going to be born king of the Jews? Nobody says, what are you talking about? They all say, oh, no, we know exactly what you're talking about. And the Bible says exactly where the baby is going to be born. And even going back to the covenant God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And many more prophecies that speak of this king that is going to come through the line of David and rule forever. So basically what we see here is God is keeping his promises. And we're reminded that that is something that he does because nothing is difficult. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is impossible for him. If you really think about it, you are not able to make promises in the truest sense of the term. Because you can't really guarantee anything, right? You can't guarantee that you will be alive five minutes from now because that is outside of your control. So you can make promises that really are have a very, very high probability, but you can't truly guarantee it. There's only one person that can do that, and that's God. And that's what he's doing right here. These things that I've been saying for hundreds and even thousands of years, I'm keeping my promise. It's going to happen. This baby is going to be born. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. It is not impossible for God. So you need to start thinking, what are the situations in your life that you just look at and you say, that's impossible? And you need to say, but really? Because is anything too hard? Is anything impossible for God? No. That person that you want to see get saved, right? You might look at it and say, it's never going to happen, right? It's too hard. Really? It, nothing is impossible for God. That area in your life that you want to grow, and you might say, I, I just don't know if I can do it. Nothing is impossible for God. And even as we think about this church, right? And what we want to do as a church ultimately is glorify God and his mission of making disciples. And there's times where that's going to be hard. Like, how are we even going to get a building to do this? What? Nothing is impossible for God. And our sights should be set so far beyond just the practicals of how is it going to happen to the spiritually weighty, the spiritually impossible things that we are seeking to see happen as a church. And we need to remind ourselves that none of that is too hard for God. To see this nation, to see a movement around the world of revival, you might look at the headlines and say, yeah, right. Nothing is impossible for God. William Carey was known, is known as the father of modern missions because of the work that he did in India. And he had a thing that he used to say where he would say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That because we believe in a God who has all power, a God that could do the impossible, we should expect 
that he will do great things. And based on that, we should seek to serve him and do great things for God. Now, at this point, when you just look at verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God, you start to get pumped up. All right, let's go. God is with us. Nothing is too hard for him. That sounds pretty amazing. Well, it might not have sounded so amazing in the moment to Mary. And let's think about why. Go back to verse 27. It describes her as a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. She had been betrothed. Now, betrothal is stronger than our concept in our culture of engagement. I'm doing a wedding this afternoon, a couple right now, they are engaged. And if any one of them, either one of them came to me after the service this morning and said, Pastor, I just can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm out, right? Nothing would stop them from that. There's nothing legally binding right now. Either one could leave if they wanted to. Don't worry, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. This is just an illustration, right? But in that culture, when you were betrothed, that was the more serious thing. You wanted to get out of being betrothed. There were two ways. You could die or you could get a divorce, right? That's how binding it was. It was as binding as marriage. That relationship had not been consummated, but it was still binding. And so that puts her in a tough spot because she is a virgin, yet she is betrothed, and now she's being told, you are going to be pregnant, right? Imagine how that is going to go over when that people find out that she is going to have a baby. And especially, how's that going to go over when Joseph, because maybe other people might think, oh, okay, Joseph, self-control, brother, come on, right? But he, what's he going to think? How's that, how'd that happen, Mary? Well, you know, I was, the, the Holy Spirit came upon me. I was overshadowed by the power of the Most High. Right, right? Those explanations aren't going to fly, and we, we chuckle about that now. But even still today, having a child out of wedlock has a, a stigma to it, but it pales in comparison to what that would have been like for Mary in her culture, in her situation, to be found to be pregnant. The road ahead for Mary is much more like, yeah, nothing's impossible for God. Mary's life was about to get really, really hard. So if point number one for us was affirm that nothing is difficult for God, point number two, well, realize God's plan won't always be easy for you. Just because it's not hard for God doesn't mean that it won't be hard for us. Mary's life, in a lot of ways, was about to get very hard. Now she's pregnant, but she's betrothed. Also, I mean, just imagine the weight of bearing a child. Those of you that have had children, uh, you know, think of when you found out about the first one was on the way. Or those of you that haven't had children, maybe there's that anticipation. I'll never forget the night I found out my wife was pregnant for the first time. It was actually our first anniversary. And she gives me a present. I open up and it's this picture saying, baby Blakey coming, right? And there was an amazement. There was like a wonder in that moment, but there was also a weight, right? It's like, whoa, like I got to be a really responsible human being going forward because I'm responsible now for some little life. Anybody feels that weight of responsibility. Imagine adding to that, oh, by the way, this baby is going to be God's own son, right, that you're responsible for. If being a parent wasn't weighty enough, being the parent of the son of God, and also, her, her parenting experience wasn't going to be easy. She's not going to 
make it out of Luke 2 before being told prophetically a, a sword is going to pierce through your own soul as she has this baby. And she is going to end up watching her son be crucified, right? Even in John, we see Mary is present there at the crucifixion of Jesus. Isn't that what every mom wants for her firstborn son, to see them crucified? Of course not. That's a nightmare for every mother. Yet that is going to be her experience. Also, it doesn't say specifically, but it's very possible, even likely, that Mary was a teenager at this point in time. In, in that culture, lots of times, once a, a young girl was physically able to have children, that's when the betrothal process would begin. So go down to our, our youth group and, and to plants and pillars and, and find one of those 13, 14-year-old girls and imagine them hearing this news. You're going to be pregnant. By the way, it's the Messiah. It's God's own son, right? Imagine that weight on a woman so young. None of this would have been how Mary would have planned her life. And you think of being young, you think of the future, you think of what's in store for your life, you think of your hopes and your dreams. Well, she's been told, no, all of that is gone. Because now you've got something different that God has for you. And while it was an amazing thing, right, in many ways for Mary, it would have been a very difficult thing. And this is often how God operates. But we need to think through our own expectations. Sometimes when we hear things about, oh, nothing is impossible for God, we start to expect, you know, hey, my life is just going to be one journey of walking through parted seas, moving mountains left and right, skipping across the waves, walking on the water with Jesus. And we forget even the context for some of those stories. The, the sea did not part until the Israelites had their backs to it and their faces to the hosts of the Egyptian army. That they weren't walking on the water on a sunny day. It was in the midst of a storm where they were afraid for their lives. This is often how God operates. Again, nothing is difficult for him. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy for us. And God has a purpose for that. A purpose ultimately that our faith would grow, that we would learn to trust him more, and that he would be glorified. Uh, let's look at a verse that explains that. Go to 2 Corinthians. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this passage should help us as we set our expectations. Because when you hear, oh, nothing is impossible for God, you just want to be like, yeah, we're going to go out and just walls are going to fall down, seas are going to part, right? Everything is just going to move perfectly for us. No, that's, that's not the expectation that we should have. 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 7, says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. And it's really talking about ministry. And this treasure of ministry, we have it in these jars of clay. That's talking about us. And basically that's saying we're nothing special. right? We have this, this treasure of ministry, but us doing it, we're not anything great. And why is it that way? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So if you're trying to serve God, this God that 
nothing is difficult for him. He's a God that can do the impossible. What should your expectations be? Well, that you will be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and always carrying in the body the death of Christ. That's what our expectations should be. You say, well, why is that? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Because when we get put in those impossible situations and it seems hard for us, that's where we see how great God is and our faith in God grows. And that's why, as it says in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. You want to follow Christ? You want to serve this God who could do the impossible? Get used to feeling like you're in an impossible situation. I was listening to another sermon on this passage this week, and the preacher used an illustration that really spoke to me because it was an illustration about golf. Um, and he talked about this experience of being underclubbed, which is you've never played. It's when you know, you've got to hit the ball so far, but you don't feel like the club that you've got will be able to hit that far. If you've ever played, think of you know, holding a nine iron in your hand. How far can you hit that? For most of you, it's probably between 100, 150 yards. Well, imagine now you've got a 200-yard shot completely over water right? that you've got to make. And you're thinking, all right, give me, give me the three wood. But God is saying, here's the nine iron. Swing away, right? That's what you're going to feel like a lot in the Christian life. You're saying, how is this going to work? But God is saying, trust me. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And we need to adjust our expectations. We need to prepare for adversity, but expect that we'll see God's power through adversity. Even consider the ministry of Christ that we just spent two years looking at through the Gospel of John. He showed us the path to glory goes through suffering. Right? That's the way that God has chosen to work. And if you're really following Christ, that's going to put you in some situations that might seem difficult. You might seek to serve Christ in ways that you might not feel equipped for. And that's where it's helpful to have a church family. So, you know, sometimes it's we can have people steer us away. No, no, that would not be a good fit for you, right? Trust me, you don't want just anybody on the worship team leading, right? You want people that have musical skill, right? So I'm not saying, hey, I've got no musical skill, but I'm going to go on the the worship team. No, you've got people around you that can help guide you, but you will end up still walking into things that even you've got people with you saying, yeah, you should step out. You should serve in this way. And you'll feel, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. You might even be thinking, you know, I'd, I'd like to serve in kids ministry, but no, no kid's ever going to want to listen to me, right? What do I have to say? And that might be exactly where God wants you to be. Say, no, trust me, point them to my word and watch me work right? You might think, I could never lead somebody to Christ. I don't know all the answers. I'm not that smart. I'm not that compelling. You know, someone else might lead. I'm going to pray somebody else leads this person to Christ because I could never do it, right? Really? With God, nothing is impossible. And God loves to use, you know, the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. That is what he does, and some of you might even feel God calling you, man, I want to serve God with all my life. I want to serve God full time. I want to go and be a part of sharing the gospel around the world or places where Christ is not known. But yeah, I don't know if I could do that. With God, nothing will be impossible. Mary is in a, a tough spot. And really all the plans that she might have had for their life, they're out the window. 
and God has put a new plan in front of her. But look at how she responds. Let's look at the last verse in our passage again now, verse 38. Let's see how she responds. It says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. That's how she responds. She responds by saying, hey, I'm God's servant. It's not about my will. It's not about my plans. If that's what God wants, let's go. That I am his servant. Let it be according to your word. Point number three today, submit yourself to the will of God. That's ultimately the example that we see from Mary. She sees God's will, even though it's going to be very hard for her, and she submits herself, she puts herself under the will of God. She says, I am your servant, and she shows a lot of trust. If you're familiar with Luke chapter 1, you're reminded Zechariah, well, he did not trust God, and and he, God said, you're going to not be able to talk until this baby is born. And if you look back at verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Uh, And you might say, well, what's the difference between his question and Mary's question, right? She asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? He asks, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced. Don't those seem similar? Well, even there, that first part in verse 18, when he says, how shall I know this? It has a sense of like, prove it to me, right? Give me some kind of sign to to prove that this is going to happen. And that's kind of, I think, why the angel says, oh, you want a sign? Okay, you won't be able to talk until the baby comes. Where Mary, I think, there's not so much give me a sign. There's just, I think, the valid question of, I'm a virgin. How's that going to work? How am I going to have a baby, right? We see her heart in it, though, is not one of questioning. It's not one of doubt. It's one of faith. And it is one of submission. And I think that really needs to be our heart. Because when we talk about these things, God can do the impossible. You know how many churches across America are saying that today? God can do the impossible. But I'm concerned about what I see in a lot of kind of popular, modern American Christianity. When you look at popular books or popular sermon clips or even popular worship songs, and what is the idea that's really coming across because the the truth is God could do the impossible, which is incredibly and gloriously true. But look at how Mary responds. She says, I am your servant. And I'm afraid the context that this is communicated in a lot today really gives the idea, hey guys, God can do the impossible. So don't give up on your dreams. Keep chasing them because God can do the impossible. Did you read this? Mary's dreams got blown up right? That this wasn't what she wanted for her life. God came in and changed her plans. I'm concerned that when we talk about God being able to do the impossible, too many times in modern American Christianity, it's really presented, God can do the impossible and he's the servant to help you accomplish your will, right? And really God becomes this all-powerful cosmic genie here to grant your wishes. That is not what the Bible teaches, She responds by saying, I am your servant. He is the Lord. We are the servants. And we submit ourselves not to our dreams, but his will and ultimately his glory. That should be the desire of our heart. God, I'm your servant. 
to live for you, to accomplish your will, to glorify your name. And that's why I think a lot of us struggle because at the end of the day, we want what we want. We want our hopes. We want our dreams. We want all of that and Jesus at the same time where he's going to say a lot of the times, no, follow me. I'm going to give you something different. And what we need to say is, hey, when my plans get blown up, if this is what God wants, if this is how I can glorify him, I'm all in. I'm your servant. Let it be done according to your will. And that's where I think when it gets taught, basically, God's the, God can do the impossible. Keep chasing your dreams. We end up setting our sights way too low. Because I'm convinced God's ways and his plans are a lot better than ours, right? And even though this might have been hard, I mean, you'll see it. Mary even is called one who has found favor with God. When God blows up your plans, do you say, oh, I have found favor with God, right? That's the way we should be responding if we really trust that his ways are better than ours. But we set our sights way too low when we talk about this sometimes, it's almost like, let's, let's say that, you know how sometimes you get a tax refund because you, you gave too much to the government and now they're giving some back? Let's just say today, you know, we have a, we have a giving refund at our church because you guys have given so much, right, that we're giving all of you $10 million on your way out of church this morning, right? Uh, how are you going to spend that? And I come to you and say, hey, how are you going to spend the $10 million? And you say, you know, I've been really wanting to remodel our bathroom, right? And I might think, okay, that's not a bad thing. I mean, some of our bathrooms might need some remodeling. But really, like you just got $10 million and that's all you got? Like, couldn't you hope for a little more? Hey, you want a new bathroom? How about a new house, right? You could get a new house and a new church building, right? You could do all of that with that money. Let's, let's set our sights a little bit higher than just, hey, let's remodel the bathroom. But there's a lot of people going to hear a sermon like this this morning, nothing is impossible with God, and leave saying, you know, maybe I will get a raise this year, Right? And if that's all we think when it comes to this, we are setting our sights way too low. And really, we're setting our sights on this life. You need to be reminded, your life is a vapor. And if you don't believe that, come back starting in January when we go through Ecclesiastes, right? Your life is a mist. It's a breath. And too many times we're saying, oh, God could do, and so maybe my mist can be a little bit bigger and last a little bit longer, right? It's nothing. We need to set our sights on what is eternal and stop wishing so much just for our plans and having a nice life and really seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because there's going to be moments where that seems impossible but we can trust God to do great things more than we could ask or think through our church in your lives in this valley in this nation around the world we need to be seeking those things But as God leads us down that road, there's going to be times where we have to say, hey, God, I'm your servant. And we think not just of the example of Mary, but the example ultimately that the son that she would bear set in the garden when he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Well, was it possible? Could God do whatever he wanted? Yes. But what did Jesus say? Not my will, but thy will be done. That needs to be the cry of our hearts every moment, every hour, every day. If you want to go back to one of the best sermons that was preached at this church this year, it was Pastor Charlie on James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, we're going to go here, do this or that. Oh, no, your life is a mist. And the last point of that sermon was live a Lord-willing life. 
That's the mindset we all need to have. Every minute, every hour. And when God steps in and changes our plans, whether that's a medical diagnosis this week, uh, something going wrong at your job, a crying child in the middle of the night, uh, a relationship that now seems broken in your life, you would respond by saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your will. That's the mindset we need to have. And if you're saying, well, pastor, that doesn't sound very fun, right? Uh, it doesn't sound very fun if, you know, God's going to mess up my plans. I, I'd rather keep my plans. I want you to see where Mary gets to in all of this. She doesn't walk away from this, wow, I've been really dealt a bad hand in life. I've been, getting a raw, I've been given a raw deal. You know what she goes on to say? Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She responds with the song that we sang earlier this morning. And that's what we're going to look at in depth on Friday. We're going to look at the response that she had from her heart. And that's the response if you submit yourself to the will of God, and you have faith in God and set yourself to serve Him, you won't end up saying, oh, this is so brutal. No, you'll end up saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. He has done great things for me. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the example of Mary that we see here. God, we thank you for your power that we see here, that nothing is impossible for you. And God, I pray that we would have that right mindset, a mindset of faith in you, but also an understanding, God, that when you set out to do great things, often you'll lead us to places that feel impossible. God, and I pray that you would give us the faith, you would give us the trust to submit ourselves to your will in those moments, to trust you, to follow you, God, to do what we know you have said to do, and that through all of that, God, our hearts would not grow bitter, but our hearts would be filled with worship, God. And as we consider the example of Mary, God, help us not to lose sight of the Savior that she bore, Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sins, God, he is the king that will reign on the throne of David forever. God, he will disperse the gloomy clouds of night and we rejoice in him. So as we rejoice in our savior, God, give us the faith that Mary showed. God, give us the faith that Christ showed in his life to trust you and to follow you and to trust that you can do the impossible. And we pray that in our lives, in our church, God, you would do more than we could ask or think and that you would do it all for your glory, that the name of our Savior might be lifted high. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.